Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, Revelation 19, here we are. We're going to continue working through this book of the Bible uh, piece by piece, verse by verse. And I want to read 10 verses with you this morning. I will not have time to cover the entire chapter, but we will get through half of it. And there's so much here. I'll, I'll be honest, as I studied this one, I just thought I'd, I'd like to preach five sermons on this chapter if I could. I'll give you two, which won't be five, but we'll get to the, to the main things, hopefully. So let's read uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, here we go. Verse 1, and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore. Now, if you haven't been here for chapter 17 and 18, that may strike you as like, what is happening? I'm not going to back up and give you all the context, uh, but there is Babylon, who is uh, referred to as a fornicator, an adulterer, a spiritual prostitute, who's engaged in both spiritual apostasy, but also is engaged in exploiting people for money. And that was severely condemned, and she was judged in chapter 17 and 18, which we saw in the last couple of weeks. She corrupted, middle of verse 2, the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever, meaning the smoke from the city that was destroyed. And the four and twenty elders, verse 4, and the four beasts fell down, and they worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, the voice as of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. You probably guessed what they were going to say. We said it a few times already. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse seven, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. Stop, don't do this. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There's so much I could say about these 10 verses, but I want to pick up on three patterns that are nestled inside of this text that I would say are both incredibly formative and informative. There's so much here that is information that you may need or maybe a paradigm shift for you as a Christian, but there's also so much here that's not just information or a paradigm shift that's meant to be applicable and is meant to be formative for your life. And the patterns are a pattern of praising, a pattern of loving, and a pattern of feasting. So let's start with the pattern of praising. You see this in the middle of verse one where they said, hallelujah. Then in verse number three, the beginning, again, they said, Alleluia. 
You see it in verse number six in the middle. They said, alleluia. And my favorite one is actually in verse number five where they said, amen, semicolon, alleluia. Amen, alleluia. What does that mean? What are they saying? Well, amen means I agree with it. And alleluia means praise God for it. There is this pattern through the first six verses of the text where the people of God are telling God, I agree with it and I praise you for it. Now, what are they agreeing with God about? Or what are they praising God for? Well, there's a lot. And that could be its own sermon, right? They praise him in verse number one, that salvation and glory and honor and power are unto the Lord our God, right? We praise God and we agree with this, that God is the honorable one. God is the glorious one. God is the powerful one. God is the God who saves, right? Salvation is a byproduct, not of our genius or of our effort, but it is a byproduct of the wisdom of God and the power of God. He created the plan. He executed the plan. He is the one who redeems and saves us. So as such, he gets praise and glory for it. Verse number three and two, he gets praise for his judgments. He is just, his judgments are true and righteous. They are without error. They are spot on. God is just. In verse number six, we sing hallelujah. Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Now, I don't know if you've ever struggled to figure out what to praise God for. Perhaps you're new to faith and you say, okay, I, I want to praise God. I want to thank him, but your theology just isn't robust. You're, you haven't learned a ton. You, you know some, but you don't know all of the concepts or the nature of the character of God, or perhaps you're not new to faith. Perhaps you have been saved for a long time, but you're in a dark moment. Right, things are hard. And it's in those moments where if we're not careful, we will neglect to thank God or to praise God. Why? Because we get so fixated on our problems. That's all that we can see. And they serve as spiritual blinders and our problems become what's in front of us and we lose sight of all the blessings that God has given us in our lives. And that should never be a pattern for God's people. The pattern should be a pattern of praising. The pattern should be a pattern of us saying over and over and over again, I agree with it and I praise God for it. Here they're praising him for what he's done in chapter 17 and in chapters 18 and for who God is. But in our own lives, we should praise God and agree with him for what he's doing, for what he did last week and what he did last month and what he did last year and what he's gonna do this year. Hey, I agree with what you're doing in my life, God. I praise you for what you're doing in my life. And if you ever struggle with what to praise God for, I'll give you a spiritual hack. Just steal what the Bible says. You don't, this doesn't have to be original content, right? You don't have to ask ChatGPT to write you something. Just look here and stop and praise him. So it may look something like this. If you were going, say you're, you're new to faith and you're going into a prayer time, if, if you're not careful, your prayer time can become uh, bless me, help me, bless me, help me, bless me, help me. But we are, as the psalmist said, to enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his gates with praise. We actually just sing that, right? Come into his presence with thanksgiving in your heart and give him praise, right? We sang that this morning. And then we also sang verse number one for, uh, I forget exactly how it goes, glory and honor and power. And it builds up. What are we singing? We're singing the Bible. That's what we're doing. 
stop and just praise him for that. Just stop and say, before I ask all of my requests and before I make all these petitions of God, which he's there for and he wants to help you with that, give him some praise and give him some thanksgiving. And just look at the list. God, I thank you for being the God of salvation. Thank you for saving sinners. Thank you for saving this sinner. God, you are the honorable one. You are the glorious one. I give you praise for that. God, you are the powerful one. So powerful, verse six says, you're omnipotent. You are all powerful, God. You reign. I agree with the fact that you reign. You're not hands off with this universe. I give you praise for that. You reign even in your justice and your judgments. Those are true and those are right, God. I agree with them. I praise you for them. Just pray and praise what it says. And then take it and begin to apply it to your life. Now, what this is saying is heaven says amen and hallelujah to God. And I dare say if heaven says this, then earth should say this as well, right? You guys want to practice this morning? Can we get class participation? Okay, we're going we're gonna to do this. You feel like third grade, but it's okay. I'll be your teacher. My left, your right, you're going to be the amen section, all right? I'm going to point at you. You're going to say amen. My right, your left, you're going to be the hallelujah section. When I point at you, you're going to say hallelujah. You ready? All right, here we go. Hey, that was awesome. Was that hard? No, it wasn't hard. You know, you're thinking, Pastor, but I verbalized it, but there's more to it than that. Like, I have to mean it. Yeah, you're right. So can you mean it? You can say it, but can you mean it? In your heart. God, I agree with, and I thank you for my health is going well. That's easy, right? Get the bad news from the doctor. Chronic pain, God, I agree with what you're doing in my life and I praise you for it. Now that's harder, but can you do both? Can you take God, I got the raise, I got the promotion, the finances are going well, uh, the portfolio is building because someone's in office that's not in office right now, you know, the, the, the inflation isn't killing me, things are going well financially, uh, amen. I agree with it and I thank you for it, but man, my portfolio is tanking. I got laid off financially. I'm in a world of hurt. Hey, God, I'm going to praise you even in the middle of this storm, right? God, we're pregnant. Amen. I'm thankful for it. I praise you for it. God, we're struggling with infertility again. Here we are another month. Can you say, I agree with it. I praise you for it. That's harder. And all of it, the people of God are to say amen and hallelujah. You find that there's this pattern in the Bible where people do this. Peter actually talks about it in 1 Peter in language that is almost astonishing, where he's like, I'm gonna be exceeding glad when I suffer for Jesus. And you're like, chill out, man, that seems too happy. But Peter understood. I can rejoice in what God does in and through my life, whether he allows it or whether he orchestrates it. I, I trust him. I can thank him for this. Even James, James tips the hat to the reality that those hard times are good for us often, right? The trying of your faith works patience. So let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and mature, wanting nothing. I know the trying of your faith is not something that you want right now, but it brings patience and let it, let it do its thing because it's going to mature you. It's going to round you out. It's going to make you a more robust human and Christian. This will help you. So in those moments, even say, God, 
I agree with what you're doing. I may not understand it, but I'm going to agree with it. I'm going to thank you for it, right? The pattern of praising. The pattern of praising. But then you see this, you see the pattern of loving. And this is what, I mean, the whole text excited me, but this just excited the fire out of me as I thought about it and studied through it. There's all this talk for two chapters, chapter 17 and 18, and then it even alludes to it in chapter 18, or 19 of how there's this spiritual fornication and the spiritual idolatry and the spiritual adultery and the spiritual prostitution, it calls it. That God comes down with the hammer on and he judges it. And then immediately you get to verse number seven and he contrasts it with, but I have a wife. And now there's all this talk of marriage and this marriage supper eventually that we get to, but it almost on a dime you turn and it's, hey, there's this, this wife and there's this fine linen that she's able to wear. And it begins to present this picture that is a pattern throughout the Bible of Jesus, the bridegroom and the church being his bride which is a really different metaphor or analogy or way to look at things than oftentimes we do. We look at things through the filter of God is the creator and I'm the creature, which is accurate and right. And that helps us understand a lot. We look at things as God is the shepherd and I am the sheep, which is accurate and right. And it helps us understand a few more things. We look at things that we should of God is my father and I'm his dear child. Accurate, right, helpful. But we should also look at things through the, through the filter of Jesus is the groom and the bride is his church and there is a marriage that happens, right? And this helps us understand a few more things. So it helps you make sense of verse number eight. Verse number eight is this verse that you're like, I, what's going on? The bride is wearing this, this fine linen, clean, pure, white, and then you're told the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, if you don't understand that there is a marriage between you and Jesus, the church and Jesus, then you probably won't get verse eight. Because a marriage is a lot of things, but it is the most legally binding relationship that you have. There are lots of relationships that could be legally binding in some way, but marriage is the most legally binding. This is why if you try to unbind it legally, it is extremely costly, extremely painful, and it takes a a long time. Some of you have been through this process of a divorce or unbinding a legal marriage, and you know that's not very straightforward, right? And it shouldn't be because you've legally bound yourself to each other in ways that you don't with other people. Other people, if you get mad at them, you send them a text and you're like, hey, I don't like you anymore. You're dead to me. Leave me alone. It's done, right? I hope that you don't do that, but you know what I'm saying? You could. (laughs) Send that text to your wife. It's not done. She still owns some of your stuff. She's still living in the house. She's like, you can't just dissolve the marriage with a text. That's not how it works, right? Legally, you bind together. And this means that if you are someone who has no money at all and you marry someone with lots of money, guess what happens when you get married? Unless there's a prenup. When you get married, legally, their stuff is your stuff, right? You never earned any of it. But now what they worked for and secured becomes yours, and when you understand that concept and you, and you get the idea that God doesn't have a prenup with you, 
that he has earned righteousness. He is the righteous one. But when you come to him in faith, yes, you are his child, but you also are now married, that you are the bride of Christ. And he now takes his righteousness, which he has earned and gives it to you, which you have not earned, but it becomes yours, right? And this text says there's a bride, there is a marriage, and she is pure, this purity and this, what she's wearing is symbolic of the righteousness of the saints. And it says both, it was given to her that she should wear, like, was it a gift? But at the end it says, it is the righteousness of the saints. Is it a gift or does she possess it? Well, yeah, both. The righteousness is something that has been given to her via the marriage that now she possesses and is hers. And this is, this is bold enough to say, so righteous, as a matter of fact, that the bride is called saints. Now, saints is a word that has a lot of uh, implications that are generally wrong for people. It's a word that needs to be untangled a bit, especially if you grew up Catholic. Uh, raise of hands, how many of you have a Catholic background and grew up Catholic, okay? Um, quite a few in the room. This point that I'm gonna make is, is not meant to be anti-Catholic. It is meant to be pro-Bible. Uh, it just so happens that the pro-Bible point here is actually anti-Catholic. So uh, take that for whatever it's worth. Sainthood is something that, uh, that you earn through a series of events in Catholicism, right? There's a, there's a multi-step process. So step number one, be Catholic, right? Because no saints, according to Catholicism, were ever a saint without being a Catholic first. Step two, die which that alone should like ring some alarm bells because Paul will often write like to the saints, which are at Philippi. And he's not writing to dead people, right? He's not six incidents incident on us. He's, he's writing to alive people. He's to the saints, right? So you can be alive and a saint, but Catholicism, be Catholic, die. Then there's this groundswell of people who begin to like you. Maybe they begin to uh, build a memorial to you or light some candles, but somehow it becomes known that in this community, like you were especially awesome. And so someone will come from the Catholic church and they'll investigate like with their clipboard or something and they'll figure out like what happened, were you really a good person? And then the bishop sends a report to the Vatican and the Vatican has it. It's at this point that the Vatican is now aware that you were, you were a good guy. And people are honoring you and people begin to pray for a miracle. And if there's a supposed miracle postpartum, like you're dead, but you somehow perform a miracle after your death, then someone can come investigate and find out is that miracle true? And if it's proven to be true, then that report gets sent and you're almost a saint. You're not yet, but you're almost. You've done one miracle after death. You're on the JV team, but not varsity, okay? You're like on the team, but you're blessed, you have to do one more miracle, and then if you can do a second miracle, then you become a saint. That's how sainthood works in Catholicism. And once you're a saint, now we can, you know, name our churches after you, or our hospitals after you, or put you in the stained glass window, or put your face on a candle and sell it next to the tortillas at Walmart. We can do that stuff, right? So the problem with this is that none of it's in the Bible, okay? Not only is it not there, there are things that are actually super opposed to that in the Bible. Here is the biblical process for sainthood. Ready? Step one, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Step two, there is no step two. It's just one. Okay, that's it. 
Sainthood in the Bible is not a narrow term. It is a broad term. It is not a select group of like super Christians who, who made the pro team and they're the saints and the rest of us are just down here at the JV level. That's not, that's not what it is at all. Sainthood in the Bible, you are a saint if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I thought saints were like supposed to be like really pious and really righteous. Yeah, you're catching on. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you are legally married and he confers his righteousness to you. Not because you were all that, because he was all that and he gives it to you. And now you are legally righteous. And if you're legally righteous, you are also a saint. That's how it works, right? The point is, if there's a marriage and that marriage includes being gifted righteousness and that includes the terminology that says of sainthood, that's you. And some of you, all I want you to do this morning is like breathe this in and to, and to tell yourself like literally right now in your head, I don't know what you're thinking about, but to start to think, Mark, or insert your name, you're a saint. Now, I don't know what you tell yourself often. You tell yourself a lot of stuff, right? Nobody talks to you more than you. You tell yourself a lot of dumb stuff. Nobody lies to you more than you. But tell yourself this truth. It may feel uncomfortable. It may feel like you're lying to yourself, but you're not. Tell yourself, I'm a saint. Not meaning you're perfect, but I am legally righteous. I, I am the bride of Christ, so I'm a saint. And if you want to, take it further. Put it on your business card. I, I don't know if you really should do that, but try it. Put it on your resume, right? Next time you send a job application with your resume, just put on there, CPR certified, type 40 words a minute, saint, right? And see what conversation that, that stirs up with the potential employer. That would be true. You could put it on there. I don't know if that's, like, if you ever thought of yourself that way, but you're a saint. And that is something that if, if you know that, then that is an identity that God is handing you that you can live from. Now, this is where it gets practical. I've been informative, but I'm about to be formative. Now I can live from that identity. And some of you, you, you struggle with identity all the time. Like you have a pervasive identity crisis because you never live out of an identity that God gives you. You're constantly living out of an identity that someone else gives you. Someone who's far more fallible than God. You live out of the identity of well, my siblings told me that I was the stupid one, so I just quit trying. I'm not very smart. And you, you live out of that. And you tell yourself, they don't have to tell you anymore. You tell yourself, you're dumb, you're stupid, you can't learn, you can't figure it out all the time. Some of you live out of, out of an identity that your ex gave you. They told you that you were worthless, that you were a piece of trash, that you had nothing to offer, and you have assumed that, and now they're gone but every relationship you get, somehow, some way, it's somebody that treats you like you're a piece of trash because you've believed it about you. Some of you, your fifth grade teacher told you you were a rebel and you would never amount to anything and that, and that you can never do anything right. So you just started living out of that. All right, call me a rebel. I'll show you what a rebel looks like. And you just took it and you ran with it. Listen, was that on your birth certificate like when you were born, I, I wasn't born in Pennsylvania. I was born in Kentucky, but I know in Kentucky, our birth certificates go like this. 
Mark Likens, born to Reno and Carla, June 24th, 1987. There's some stats on, on my birth and my, my weight and my height and that sort of stuff. But there's no bullet points that say dumb, smart, uh, uh, piece of trash, valuable. It doesn't say any of that. Somebody else handed that to you and you took it. And if you can take that from them, can you not give it back to them and take what God's handing you? He's handing you, you're righteous, you're a saint. And when you get that, your identity will start to determine your destiny. When you get that I am headed one day for utter righteousness, not just legally righteous, but my actions will be utterly righteous. I will not struggle with sin anymore. I will not wrestle with these desires and, and what's, what's wrong in my life. I won't give in to those desires. That is my destiny and I will live that forever. That means that sin may be able to explain some of your existence right now, but that's not who you are. That's not who you will be. So you don't live out of that. You live out of righteousness. You live out of sainthood. I just saw this just this week. I went to a graduation at, uh, where was it? One of the high schools, I can't even remember the name of it right now, Deer Lakes. And they had those that were going into the military stand up and lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. There were five or six individuals who had already signed up to go to the military. And they listed off some of their qualifications. And it was amazing to me. These 17, 18 year olds who are not soldiers yet, they're not sailors yet, they're not Marines yet, but they were already living out of that identity. They were in ROTC. They were practicing drills. They were, they were preparing uh, physically for it. They, they had learned, some of them, the honor guard and how to fold the flag and how to do it. They weren't even a, a, a sailor or a soldier yet, but they knew that will be my identity. So they lived out of it in the present. That makes sense. When you get sainthood and righteousness, and you begin to breathe in the reality that I have the righteousness of Christ, that I am a saint, then you will begin to change your actions in the present. It will help you. And I'm telling you, it's a lot better identity than what a lot of Christians assume for themselves, which is an identity of sinner, even though they're saved. You need to see yourself as unrighteous and a sinner so that you will accept a savior. But when that happens, your identity is no longer sinner. And I know a lot of Christians, I know a lot of churches even that spend their, their like entire existence beating people up spiritually that are already saved and telling them that they're a sinner and they're good for nothing and heaping shame and shame and shame and shame and they begin to live out of that. And I'm trying to help you, stop, stop. When you sin, recognize it, own it, repent of it, and move on. But understand your identity is not sinner, right? Heaven doesn't know you as sinner boy. Like the angels aren't having a conversation. and like, hey, uh, Jim Bob. You, you know Jim Bob? No, I don't know Jim Bob. Yeah, yeah, Jim Bob, like pornography guy. Yeah, oh, Jim Bob, that's him. That's not how it goes. They're not talking about you. And like, she, she's Miss Discontent, you know? She's always looking for stuff to bring her comfort and to bring her satisfaction, but she never finds it in her stuff. And, and she's super discontent. That's the one. Oh yeah, I know her. You're not known that way in heaven. So understand there's a marriage, right? There's a pattern of love. That love means there's a marriage between Christ and his bride. And I'm, let me trace it down for you. 
That means legally you are joined together. Legally, this says you are given his righteousness. You can call yourself a saint. You should call yourself a saint. And because of that, you should live out of that, right? You get it? There's a marriage, there's a pattern of love. Marriage is the most legally binding relationship you have, but then also marriage is the most intimate relationship that you have. Should be at least. I know that things can go awry and you can drift apart and there can be no intimacy in any way, shape or form. I, I get that that can happen. But all of us understand that marriage is designed to be an intimate relationship. Even relationships that are meant to be very close and you share a lot, <coughs> don't hold a candle to marriage, like your children, right? Have a great relationship with your children. Be their friends one day when they're in adulthood, you know? But that's not the most intimate relationship that you have. It can be intimate, but it's a one-way street, really. You see them naked, they don't see you naked. You uh, will have them share their, their fears and their hurts and their emotions in profound ways, whether it's little, I'm scared of the dark, I'm scared of the monster under my bed. They get a little older. Here's this relationship that's happening or I'm scared that I'm gonna get a rejection letter from the college that I applied to. You don't share your biggest fears and concerns with them normally. You wanna protect them from that. You wanna shield them from that because they're your child. You don't want them to be spun up and worry. You don't share all of those emotions like you do with your spouse, right? Why? Because the relationship with your spouse is the most intimate. And when you get the implications on relationship of what this is saying, like it's mind-blowing. There's no other religion that talks about God this way. That God is not just the creator. God is not just even father, but there's a marriage, there's relationship, there's intimacy that can be shared in. And when you understand this, it helps you make sense of commands. It helps you make sense of sin. It helps you make sense of the Bible. I heard Tim Keller quite some time ago, give an illustration on this and it stuck with me for a long time. Let's suppose there's a husband and a wife. We're gonna call them John and Jill, okay? Jill finds out that John has been spending inordinate amounts of time with another woman at work. He spends his lunch breaks with her. He talks to her. He spends some evenings with her. He texts her often. He calls her. Sometimes on the weekends, they hang out together and they talk about John's aspirations and his dreams and emotions and, and what she's going through. And they talk about all these things and Jill finds out about it. Naturally, she's ticked. So she confronts John and says, John, what's up? I, I have the evidence you're doing this. And John says, so what? What's it to you? Look, we're married. I chose you, okay? I didn't choose her. I chose you. I gave you my name. I go to work and I earn the money and the money puts the roof over your head. I give you my stuff. I share in my income with you. I'm legally bound to you. I, I only give you my body. I'm not, I'm not physical with her. I'm only physical with you. Look, I give you, I give you my name. I give you my love. I give you, I give you my stuff. I give you my body. What more do you want from me? Any good wife knows exactly what Jill would say. But you're not giving me your heart. Yeah, I have your name and yeah, I have your stuff. But I don't have your heart. 
and I need your heart. And if John looks at Jill, says, get over it. It's not the way this works. How many of you think Jill should punch John in the face? <laughs> I'm not condoning violence, but you know, that doesn't fly. That's not a, that's not a marriage. That's not how it works. But think about it. Think about it. We're John all the time. Where God comes to us and says, hey, let's have a relationship. And we say effectively, you know what? I took your name. I got baptized. I, I proved to everybody I was on team Jesus. Look, you have my stuff. I give, I tithe. I'm generous. I give to the church. You have my stuff. Hey, I'm here, aren't I? I'm present. I go to church. I do my thing. And God looks at us and says, but I want your heart. And all the time we john it up. We give our heart and the title to our heart, to our career and to other relationships and to money and all kinds of stuff. And meanwhile, he sits there saying, I know I have this and this and this, but I don't have your heart. This doesn't feel right. And you, you and I both know in a marriage, when there's a bride, the heart should be first and foremost, right? This would make sense of the greatest command. What's the greatest command? That you love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Love me the most. You say, how selfish? Nuh-uh. Not when you understand that there's a pattern of love. That makes sense. And it stands to reason that that's the, that's the greatest command. It would stand to reason that perhaps the most insulting thing we could ever do to God is to not love him with all of our heart. It's to try to give him all these things that are very trite in comparison to our love. And he says, this is a relationship. This is a marriage. I want your heart first and foremost. This also helps you make sense of sin. And I'll, I'll switch gears after this. This helps you understand that when you sin, you're not just breaking a rule from a sovereign. In many ways, you're breaking God's heart. It's not this disconnected relationship where you don't know each other and there's these rules. Who gave these rules? Oh, the king never met that guy, but I guess we're supposed to obey them. Nuh-uh. This is a marriage. And when you, when you break that, you break his heart. And it helps you reframe how you see your own sin. It helps you reframe how you should see a, a God that is holy and just, but wants to know you. What is it? It's a pattern of praise. It's a pattern of love. But lastly, and certainly not least, there's a pattern of feasting. What does it say? It says you are married. And then it eventually goes on to say, blessed. Blessed are the ones that are uh, invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Now that's, that's interesting because we, we've seen all through Revelation that there's praise and there's worship of God, okay? But now you're seeing something different. It's not just praise and worship, there's a feast. And this is helpful, this is really helpful because I know a lot of Christians who their view of heaven, their view of eternity is a giant sing-along in the sky forever. And they never admit it because they feel really unspiritual because all the other Christians are amped up about heaven. They're ready to go. And they think of the giant sing along in the sky forever. And they're like, I like karaoke night, 
but eventually I want it to end, right? Like I, I, hours, day, week, maybe, but I don't want this forever. That sounds like I would get bored eventually. Now I'm not saying you would get bored eventually. I'm not trying to diminish the, the awesomeness of God. What I am saying though, is that it is inaccurate for you to view heaven exclusively as a praise and worship service or a sing-along where you sing and that's all you do for eternity. That is part of it and it will be awesome. But there is more than that. And we're gonna see this as we move through the, the back part of Revelation, but I wanna give you at least one more bullet point. If you think of heaven, sing along in the sky, bullet point one, leave it there, but add bullet point number two, which is feast. My bride, I want, I want them to come to the marriage supper. We wanna sit down and we wanna have a big wedding meal and we wanna have a supper and we wanna dine together. And I don't know about you, but when I think of sing-along and feast, that's a lot better than me than just sing-along. Can I get an amen? amen? This is a beautiful, beautiful idea that God and his people are now going to dine and commune that over a table, that they will talk, that they will eat, that they will feast. And this is something that is patterned for us in profound ways all through the Bible. Now, I, feel, I must be honest, I feel like I've already backed the dump truck up and dumped a lot of stuff on you this morning, more than I normally would. But I'm gonna give you one more. And if you need the pattern of praise, hang on to that and you run with that this week and you can just put these other two in the back of your head. If you need the pattern of love, you hang on to that and you put the other two in the back of your head. But some of you need this one. Tables are all over the Bible in these deep moments. So for example, one of the most profound moments in all of the Old Testament is the Passover, where God is going to hear the cries of his people and he is going to deliver them from the enemy and take them out of Egypt into the promised land. But right before he does that, what does he do? He says, let's stop and let's have a feast. Let's get the lamb. Let's get, let's, get, let's get the food, let's get the bread, let's even get the bitter herbs. You know, bitter herb, why are those superfoods? Like what are bitter herbs? No. Meant to remind you of the bitterness that was in your mouth when you were, when you were under bondage and how that's, that's now gone. And God says to his people, I hear your cry and before I deliver you, let's have a table, let's have a meal. And oh, by the way, keep on doing this. Don't forget this moment. Keep on remembering, right? Then you fast forward to the New Testament and there was this last supper right before deliverance, right before the cross. They stop and they commune and they dine, they sup, they sit back, they relax and there's a lot of conversation and there's a lot of serving and there's a lot of things that happen, but there's this feast. And oh, guess what? The church is told, remember that, right? Have an agape feast, have the Lord's supper, have the Lord's table. I know that oftentimes we do it with like the tiniest piece of bread and a, and a little bit of juice, but it wouldn't be unfitting to do it in a feast, in a feast manner, to be around a table, right? And there's this pattern of, of eating and dining and drinking and feasting that is there. And you see this represented, not just in the feasting, but even in the, and when it happens, Right? David echoes this sentiment in Psalm chapter number 23. Whereas, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me where in the presence of mine enemies. 
And we forget that part. The enemies are like sharks in the water circling and we're just gonna stop and have a table and a spread and we're gonna feast, right? The timing is impeccable in all these moments. Before God delivers the, the final blow to the enemy in Egypt, let's have a feast. Before God delivers a, I'm not gonna say the final blow because there's more coming to the devil. But before he accomplishes salvation on the cross, makes redemption possible for us and defeats death and sin, what does he do? He stops and he dines. Then you get to Revelation and they stop and they dine and oh, wouldn't you know it? Verse number 11, this is coming next week. Well, two weeks from now, actually, we'll preach on this. Come on, blessed are those that come to the marriage supper. Verse 11, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse number 19, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. End of the verse. These bo both were cast into the lake of fire, burning with fire and with brimstone. What is this saying? This is saying in the Old Testament, before I blow up the enemy, let's have a feast. In the New Testament, before the cross, before I blow up the enemy, let's have a feast. You get to Revelation, before I blow up the enemy, let's sit down and let's have a feast. And you think about the implications of that. When you have your most difficult day ahead of you, like the toughest day you're gonna have all year, tell me if I'm lying, you struggle to sit down and have a feast the day before. I played in a lot of basketball games, a few championship basketball games through high school and college. I never wanted to eat a big meal before the game because I had butterflies. I was nervous. What's gonna happen? This is gonna take everything we got. We gotta leave it all on the court. I feast after the game if we win. We'll go to Denny's at 1130 at night, but not before the game. Pre-game, God's like, I ain't nervous at all. I got no butterflies. I'm not worked up a bit. I will prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Watch this. Sit down, kick it, relax for a little bit, eat with me, dine with me, feast with me, and tomorrow I'll take care of business. That is awesome. That is telling you about the, the power and the character of an almighty God who has a pattern of feasting before he wallops the devil upside his head. He's not nervous a bit. Now you take that and you think about what that means for your life. If you're married to him, if that's your man, if that's your man, what are you nervous about? What are you scared about? You scared of eternity? You scared of what awaits you? You scared of what's gonna befall you in this life that he's not gonna take care of you? Uh-uh. Why can the people of God, why are we supposed to have such peace? Peace that passes understanding. Why are we supposed to not fear? Why does his presence mean so much that we would fear not? Because he's, he's always with us. Why? Because he's God. Because if, if that's our bridegroom, if that's who we're married to, and all that power and all that control is in his hands, then relax. Relax.
relax, sit at a table and eat and die. And I'm talking about an eternity, you're gonna do that, but I'm also talking about today even. Chill out. There's an old church saying, let us eat, drink, and be merry because yesterday we were dead. This idea, I was on my way to hell yesterday and now I'm redeemed and on my way to heaven. <laughs> this is awesome, right? It's this idea that the people of God should be light and, and we should laugh and we should, we should be merry. We should joy. We should even feast. And I know we're bad at this. Our culture is such like fast food culture, like driving a minivan and chucking nuggets back to our kids while we're driving. I know. I know we're so bad at slowing down and pausing and feasting, but I dare some of you when you get to a, a holiday, when you come to the, the Easter's and the Christmases or the Thanksgiving, I dare some of you on a random Tuesday to stop and to slow down and just say, God, you are awesome. How good you've been in my life. And just get some friends together and have a feast and dine and say, God is good. We are the people that should be able to do that. Why? Because of God. So I'll bring it full circle. You know what I say to that? Amen and hallelujah. The idea of God loving me, of God wanting my heart, that God would want my heart, it's crazy. The idea that we're gonna feast with him, that he's in control, I mean, I agree with that and I praise God for it. And I hope that all of us can. <laughs>